You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We're speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to great to talk with you again, Jeremy. Uh, I'd like to get a, a, a thumbnail sketch of Nightshade's history, just to give our listeners an idea of what we're heading towards here. When did you first start Nightshade Books? Uh, Nightshade uh, was begun about ten years ago um, by Jason Williams, and about a year afterward, um, I joined him. We had both kind of gotten a wild hair to do some some small press projects and specialty press items, and um, we're both kind of semi-successful and uh, met and joined forces and then pretty much decided that we wanted to do, you know, kind of trade trade hardcovers and trade paperbacks, and we've been building towards that for the last 10 years. So from the get-go, when you two guys got together, you thought, you, you saw yourself as going up against uh, the New York publishers. Yeah, actually we did. There was a, um, a a decision that we made very early on. A lot of the independent publishers were doing limited, signed limited editions, $40 collectibles, and that type of thing. And we we decided, no, we want to do $24, $25, you know, $26 hardcovers, you know, get them on the shelves, you know, in, in major bookstores around the country and sell them right next to, you know, New York, New York books because there seemed to be a lot of, you know, kind of little niches that weren't being served that we could serve. Can you tell me about uh, your journey building up? Because you said you guys started out with specialty press and, and with the typical small press editions. Tell me a little bit about that journey in terms of uh, finding distributors and finding printers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we got very well. The, the the journey for distribution was was kind of lucky and kind of a curse. Um, one of the first books that we did um, got excellent trade reviews. Um, John Shirley's really, really, really weird stories. And John Shirley's kind of um, a perfect example of an author, uh, very respectable, you know, well-known author, um, but the major houses just weren't interested in doing a collection with him, and it was something that we could do very well with. Um, we got good coverage, Star Review, and Publishers Weekly, in fact, and that led to some of the wholesalers contacting us directly and saying, we want to carry your books. Because without them seeking you out, they, you know, they'd put you in a short-pants league where they'd, you know, give you really bad terms and, you know, not make your books available. So out the gate, we, we had uh, national wholesale, you know, wholesalers carrying us, so we were two days away from any, you know, any special order in the country, any bookstore could get our books within, you know, two or three days because the wholesalers were stocking them. So that was a, one of the major hurdles. And um, after that, it became a decision to, of what kind of distributor we wanted to go with. Um, and we didn't go with a distributor for the first like six or seven years um, until we found the right um, the right company to to partner up with. And in our case, it was uh, Diamond Books, who's um, a book distrib- 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 dis- a book distribution arm of Diamond Comics. And they focus on science fiction. They weren't in any danger of you know going bankrupt, which is always a big issue, you know, especially lately. And so. Um, they offered us very reasonable terms, and again, it was a matter of they came after us because we actually had a um, a, a pretty good big coup. We had a, a Hugo nomi- nominated novel, uh, Ian Banks' The Algebraist, 
And so when we went to sell this to the chains, um, actually the chains recommended, um, you know, sent Diamond to us and said, hey, these, these guys are good. Why don't you pick them up for your list? So it was like having the right product to get people to come to us, having the right books to get people to want to work with us. And so that's always been, been the key of, you know, getting, getting bigger and bigger, getting, getting higher profile projects, getting more accessible projects. So the Algebraist was kind of a big coup for us, but it was it was all a matter of building up. We had had a relationship with Ian Banks's um, agent, and we worked with one of Ian Banks's friends previous, and did did pretty good with it. And so Ian Banks gave us a chance with his novel, and so it was it was all a matter of you know building up, you know taking steps forward, building on our successes. Um, you asked about some of the specialty press stuff that we'd done very early on. You know, when we're still getting our feet underneath us as far as, you know, contemporary fiction was going, um, we were, you know, nothing was selling really well. We were still trying to figure out how to promote it. And, but one of the things that was very successful for us was um, kind of the classic weird fiction line of books that we've done. Uh, that, that includes our first, one of our first major successes was Manly Wade Wellman. And we did a five-volume set of all of his weird fiction. And Manly was, a, he's a um, contemporary Ray Bradbury's, wrote for Weird Tales in the, you know, the 30s and 40s and 50s, and, you know, very prolific, but at the time he was completely out of print, and the only, you know, reading copies available were, you know, books that were going for three or $400 on the, uh, on the used market, and so we put together a set of $35 hardcovers, um, you know, leather-bound with no dust jacket. You know, this wasn't something that was going to sell off the average bookstore shelf, but it would sell to libraries, and it would, you know, sell to people who knew who Manly Wade Wellman was, and it was far more successful than we had even um, possibly anticipated at the time. And so, you know, we, we used that early success to kind of do more classics projects. You know, we did William Hope Hodgson and Lord Dunsany. And so, but those classic projects, <coughs> we've sort of been moving away from those classics projects. And um, actually, we're at the culmination of our classics line. Um, we're in the middle of a five-volume set of uh, Clark Ashton Smith. It'll be the complete, uh, the complete fantastic fiction of Clark Ashton Smith. And so that that's kind of like, you know, it's been really great to be able to, all these writers who totally brought me into the genre when I was a younger reader, you know, Lord Dunsany, Manly Wade Wellman, Clark Ashton Smith, even H.P. Lovecraft, we've published all of them. And it's been a total joy to be able to kind of like bring these books out to a new generation and, you know, and have them very popularly received. It's also a, a service to the genre to keep these things in print so that people who are first coming to read fiction and weird fiction can find the classics. It's it's important to keep reading itself alive because these are the kind of books that hook, you know, the 13-year-old adolescent boys who spend the rest of their lives throwing money at science fiction bookstores. Yeah, that's exactly right. You always have to keep, you know, the good stuff that came before that inspired you to enter the genre, that's always, you know, it's always going to be inspiring a new generation if it's available. And that was exactly the case with Manly Wade Wellman. It, it wasn't. And so it was really gratifying, you know, to, to have a whole new generation of, you know, readers come up to me and say they discovered Manly Wade Wellman because of my sets, because of my books. And so that was, that was really, I felt, you know, very good about that. One of the things I like about your books is that they're very, uh, 
They're beautifully produced. They're nicely bound. They're nicely printed. You use a font size that I can actually read. I, I just picked up the trade paperback of uh, Michael Flynn's Eiffelheim and, and because I really wanted to read it. But as soon as I opened up the book, the tiny type just absolutely put me off. And it's, you know, it, it looks like a really interesting book, but it's a book that's going to go to the bottom of my stack just by virtue of not being easy to read. And, and you guys focus on that kind of reading quality. Yeah, we do. I mean, there is always, particularly for, for us with, a, with the shorter print runs and stuff, I mean, page count is a big deal. And, you know, so we, it's, a, it's tough to balance the, the hard economies of scale of, like, you know, an extra two signatures makes that, you know, marginal project into a, you know, a losing project. But at the same time, you know, some of our early books, you know, yeah, we, we suffered the same thing. We crammed too many words on a page or, or letting just wasn't enough. And, you know, but we've tried to learn from those mistakes. And, you know, we have what we think is a, a very good compromise between, you know, maximizing, you know, the words on the page to make these books economical, econ, economical and, you know, and, and readability. Because at the end of the day, that's what it is. A lot of, a lot of small presses... Or you know, specialty items are selling for the sake of the item, um, but we've always wanted our books to be read. And clearly, you know, clean typography and you know, clear readability is you know, an important part of that. We didn't want our books to be items that were collected and you know, put in bags and set on a shelf and never read. You know, it was always a matter of we wanted the fiction out there. Could you talk about the physical people? How did you have you always been going to the same printer? Did you go through a succession of printers? How do you deal with that? Well, um, we started out by asking other publishers. You know, because that's really where you get your best, you know, best recommendations. Other publishers who are doing similar things, similar print runs, similar production quality. Um, very early on, we asked um, people like um, Bill Schaefer at Subterranean Press or Rich Chisholm at Cemetery <laughs> Dance. Um, Rich Chismart Cemetery Dance, these were people who were producing really nice Smythe Sewan hardcovers um, for the collectible market um, in print runs that were close to what we wanted to do. And so, you know, we talked to them and ended up going with one of their printers um, for our hardcovers. And for a long time, they did most of our books. But as we started um, expanding and doing trade paperbacks, um, we started branching out and it was came a matter of talking to people who do, you know, trade paperbacks with higher print runs. We're talking, you know, just this year we're breaking into mass market paperback, and so it became a matter of talking to people who do mass market paperbacks and who do they use. Um, and so in this case, you know, we talked to people like Simon & Schuster and Random House, and who do they use to print their mass market paperbacks. And, I mean, it's a really competitive, it's one of the things that um, is remarkable about the industry. It's very accessible. Um, these printers have enormous capacity and um, are very easy to work with, and they scale very well. So, you know, our mass market printers are perfectly happy to work with us um, just as well as they are to work with uh, Simon & Schuster. So, you know, we're, we're, we're getting the economies of scale because they're printing all the books for Simon & Schuster, you know, for our, you know, much smaller list. So it's, it's really kind of revolutionary where the small guys have access to this level of production. That's fascinating. And one thing I'd like to ask, at what point did you decide to make the break into trade paperback and why, and then into a mass market paperback and why? Well, it became a matter of what format was going to get um, 
is going to reach the the widest audience. Because you know, take a book and you have a theoretical basis of like, in an ideal world, there might be five thousand people who care about the complete fiction of William Hope Hodgson, and I have the capacity to meet fifty, reach fifty percent of them. You know, so that kind of says, okay, there's a twenty five hundred copy mark. What is you know the format that is going to most cost effectively get out to those twenty five hundred people? And is the format going to get in the way of reaching those people? Um, for the classic fiction and, you know, for some of our um, more obscure items or specialty items, you know, hardcovers is a good fit. But for the stuff that we wanted to reach, reach a much broader audience, um, we needed to move to trade paperback. That was one of the things that when we started working with our distributor, um, they made it very clear. And one of the things that, you know, the chains made it very clear, you know, they were willing to take some of our hardcovers in limited quantities, but... You know, they'd say, look, if you do this in trade paperback, I'll, you know, I will get behind it. I will commit to a lot. And, you know, they did commit to a lot of copies of, say, the Algebraist. Um, and so, and that was a perfect example of, you know, a, a mid-list author with a very, very solid reputation and cult following. Trade paperback, you know, was the ideal format because, you know, the size of the Ian Banks fan base said that, well, if we can reach 50% of that, you know, this is this is the number we can print, and the difference between a twenty-four dollar hardcover and a fifty fourteen dollar hardcover will get in the way of reaching the majority of that audience. And so, you really got to kind of like take into account, you know, the demographics of who reads that author, um, you know, and the size of the you know the size of of the people you're trying to reach, the the number of people you're trying to reach. And in the case of mass markets, it just became, you know, for a long time, we had a kind of psychological barrier. We were like, well, we'll never do mass markets. We'll never do mass markets. But we kept on getting more and more projects that were, you know, frankly, quite mainstream and quite, you know, populist and just fun. Um, we have a series right now by Liz Williams, who I, I believe is, you know, t- a, a perfect, you know, her target market is, you know, Jim Butcher readers, um, you know, readers of, like, contemporary urban fantasy and they read mass market paperback. I mean, the majority of sales for that type of book take place in mass market paperback. And so we had to kind of do the gut check because we'd done Liz and hardcover and trade paperback and had some modest success. But really to break her out to a wider audience, we had to kind of like come up with a plan to present the mass market paperbacks, you know, to, to our distributor, to the buyers at the chains, you know, and then ultimately to the readers in such a way as to, you know, kind of like, you know, point out, hey, this is something that you'll like. So it's it's a constantly evolving thing. You have to evaluate each project on its own on its own merits and determine that. You know, some some of the books we're doing as mass market originals. Some we're going from hardcover to mass market. Some are trade paperback originals that, if they do well or you know if they break out, we're putting into mass market. It really depends. So what has been your most successful uh, trade paperback thus far? Um, our most successful trade paperback thus far has been Ian Banks' The Algebraist. Um, it's been out for about, well, about two and a half years now, I guess, two years or so. And we've sold like 17,000 copies of it. So Wow, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we've sold more copies in trade. We've sold more copies of The Algebraist in our formats, then Simon & Schuster has sold a look to Windward in mass market paperback. Um, and that was the last Ian Banks novel, you know, five or six years ago. So 
it was a, a certain amount of the right place, right time. Ian Banks had gotten a Hugo nomination, a lot of people talking about him. But the other part of it was we made it a big deal. You know, Ian Banks on our list, he was the big fish. He was the most important book on our list, and we made sure everybody knew that this was an important book, and it was treated as such. Whereas if you end up at a bigger house where there's a lot of big fish, you know, Ian, Ian hadn't been getting... Um, treated very well at Simon and Schuster. He was just a, just another midlist author there, and that was one of the reasons why his agent and and Ian chose to go with us. Um, but actually, uh, we've just had another enormous kind of breakout success um, in trade paperback. Uh, Glenn Cook's the, A Cruel Wind, which is a um, omnibus of his Dread Empire novels. We did it in hardcover last year, and we just put it out in trade paperback in uh, August of this year. And we've sold close to 10,000 copies of it so far. So that one's just been flying off the shelves. Um, there's a period the first month it was selling, it was, um, I can look at our distributors' um, sales reports for each week, and it was like our best, it was our, for our entire distributor, it was in their top five for like two or three weeks running. You know, and they distribute things like Frank Miller's 300 or Marvel Zombies or, you know, stuff that has huge. You know, appeal. So for a while, Glenn Cook's uh, trade paperback was just flying off the shelves, and it's still, you know, still doing really well. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna face the uh, the problem of having to reprint it, and that's a good problem to have, I think. That's a great problem to have, and, and I have to ask, you know, Ian Banks, uh, Neil Asher, Glenn Cook, these are guys who are used to dealing with New York. How do you get them to deal with San Francisco? Well, <laughs> um, I. I pay them money, same amount of money that New York pays them, um, and I, you know, they're they're big names on my list, and I treat them as such. I mean, it's it's one of the things. Like, I got into business because you know I worked in the in bookstores, in independent bookstores for you know for a long time, for like ten, fifteen years now. And you know, one of the things that I that you hear booksellers and people always complain about is the death of the mid list, the consolidation, the conglomeratization of the big publishers. Um, and during a, frankly, a very tough book-selling economy, that's one of the things that has always made me optimistic about Nightshade, was the fact that um, a lot of these authors are getting left by the wayside, or not treated very well, or, you know, frankly, not paid very well. And so I can go in and, you know, be competitive with, with New York and offer, like I was talking about, access to the same printers that New York uses, um, Covers that look, you know, as good or better. You know, that was, you know, I've always placed an emphasis on, you know, cover design and so they look good on the shelves, so they look just as good or better than the New York books. And and so if I can offer all these things, you know, frankly, a lot of the some of the authors that I I, I deal with, you know, I'm their second publisher. Like Glenn Cook has a New York publisher, and I publish his backlist. And I publish, you know, other things. Neil Asher is the same way. Um, we commission a series of smaller novels, but his mainline novels are published, you know, by a New York publisher. Um, but in Liz Williams' case, we are her publisher. Um, in Matt Hughes' case, we are his publisher. So some of the authors, you know, we pick up the stuff that New York doesn't want, and some of the authors, you know, we, we pick them up, you know, because New York didn't want them, or we pick them up because we can do better with them than New York can do. Um, and we're also, um, frankly, this year we just pursued a, a very aggressive um, campaign of first novels. Um, we're, there's a lot of good, very 
very publishable not you know novels out there that aren't getting picked up that aren't getting put out because it is a tough book selling economy publishers aren't willing to set as many slots aside for first time novelists they want the sure thing so or for novels that don't quite fit into a category we just had a arabian fantasy slash mystery that we published in mass market paperback and it was just a barn burner, great pacing, really fun, and I, I was like, how did this not get picked up? This is brilliant. Let's do this. And it's done pretty well for us. I mean, it was our first mass market, and um, it's getting out there, but, you know, it it, it was it was a Turkish-slash-Arabian Nights fantasy. It wasn't a traditional Western fantasy. It was a fusion of mystery and fantasy, and so it didn't fit neatly into kind of like a perceived category. So, you know, we're happy to grab that and run with it because it was brilliant storytelling. We've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. Yeah, my pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.